know, not only is this Women's History Month, today happens to be National Anthem Day, and we won't go deep into, you know, what happened. Obviously, I think we mentioned Colin Kaepernick. I want to shout out some people who were standing behind him when everything went down. Of course, you know, the little people like us, you know, behind our, our, our feeds and stuff like that. But you have people like, you know, Tamika Mallory. You have, you know, Nessa, you know, his girlfriend. You have, of course, everyone down to my girl, Cardi B. So shout out to all of us, too. And standing up for <laughs> Cardi B, life. if you listen to the show, please, please retweet, retweet us. Cardi, <laughs> that was Jalita Porter giving her Women's History Month shout out to some of the women, including rapper Cardi B, who stood beside Colin Kaepernick as he exercised his right to protest the NFL. Whether it's here in America or abroad, women have always played historic roles in politics and policy, which is our focus on this episode of What in the World. You'll have a chance to hear more from Jelena and our other guest, Laura Coupe, on why women should care about foreign policy. Both are going to do this by sharing their personal experiences, their own takeaways from Black Panther, yes, we're going back to Black Panther, and the real-life crisis taking place in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Thanks for tuning in. I am your host, Bumi Akinasotu. On this episode, we're going to speak with two amazing women about why foreign policy matters and why, in particular, women and minorities in America should care about foreign policy. If you've been following the show for a while, you know that all the guest experts are voices we typically don't hear from when we're watching the news or maybe even on other foreign policy podcasts. You should also know that the purpose of this show is to break down the stuff that you hear in the news and make it relevant to your life, to, to like the stuff that you deal with on a regular basis. So what I thought I would do today uh, in honor of Women's History Month and also you know around the energy surrounding Black Panther, the film, is to zero in on this issue of foreign policy using the personal stories of our two guests, the film Black Panther, and in the time that we have, maybe talk about a couple of issues that are currently in the news um, that you've been hearing about. Our two guests are Laura Coupe and Jelena Porter. Uh, they'll tell you more about themselves uh, in a little bit. But in short, Laura Coupe is a policy analyst at the Rand Corporation and before that, she worked at the Department of Homeland Security, working on issues related to immigration and migration, border security, and counterterrorism. She's a member of the Truman National Security Project and is the Youth Ambassador for Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security and Conflict Transformation, uh, to which Bonnie Jenkins, Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins, is the founder, and she was on the show earlier this year. Laura's parents are originally from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and she was born in Germany and raised in Luxembourg before uh, she came here to the United States with her family. She speaks German, French, Luxembourgish. Did I say that right? Yeah, that's, that's close enough. <laughs> Luxembourgish uh, and is the self-proclaimed Afropean American. Yes, I love that. I love it. I love it. Uh, she graduated from, uh, she's got her BA from University of Michigan and a law degree from Michigan Law School. Next up, we have Jelena Porter, who is the press secretary at Truman National Security Project as well. Again, I didn't describe what that is, but uh, they are a foreign policy-based think tank here in, in Washington, D.C. She was a communication staffer um, for Congress and is a returned Peace Corps volunteer. Jelena, where did you serve? I served in the Kingdom of Cambodia. 
2009 to 2011. Yes. And we're going to hear more about her experiences in Cambodia. As a creative, Jelena has been privileged to perform as a professional cheerleader, professional dancer for several professional sports teams spanning the National Lacrosse League, the NFL, and the NBA. She's a proud graduate of the wonderful mecca of HBCUs that is Howard University. <laughs> go Bison. Thank you. Go, go Bison. <laughs> yeah, right. go Somebody Bison. can shout the holler back on the show. I, I don't think I'm allowed to shout the holler back because I didn't go to Howard. If you can. You're oh, I can? Okay, do, do it, yes. do it, do it. Hey, you? You know? There you go. Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm an honorary Bison because of my friends. Um, but thank you all for joining us um, this this evening to talk about why foreign policy matters to women and minorities using your own personal stories. And we'll start right there. Um, Laura, we'll start with you. How did you go, girl, from Luxembourg to the United States? Like what inspired you to want to do this work in foreign policy? Right. So whenever people always ask me why I know how to speak Luxembourgish, I always ask them for about 10 minutes so that they can understand my family's story. So it always goes back to my parents. So my, as you mentioned, my parents are from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, their hometown is Kikwit. My dad always says Kikwit is the center of the universe because that's where he was raised. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so they were fortunate enough to get scholarships to study in, in Germany. So my dad got his scholarship from the European Economic Community, which which was the precursor to the European Union. And my mom was able to get um, her education funded through charities related to the Catholic Church. I was born in Aachen, Germany. Say it uh, again. Aachen. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, so that's where my mom and dad went to school. And as my dad was wrapping up his PhD in electrical mechanical engineering, he got a job offer to work for General Motors in Luxembourg. So uh, when I was six months old, our family moved to Luxembourg, and that's where I was raised until I was nine and a half years old. Um, so I always tell people when it comes to foreign policy, I always tell people I do foreign policy in my head every day, managing... <laughs> You know, all the all the different various uh, countries that I, you know, have a have a tie to. And so, for example, German is my first language. So sometimes, you know, I think in German uh, and then a lot of my family is French speaking. Mm -hmm. And then I learned English when I moved to America. So English is actually the fourth language that I <laughs> learned. So just inherently, I always tell people I am global just by nature inherently. And so and because of that, I've always had an interest in foreign policy. And this has manifested in what I studied. So at the University of Michigan, I studied political science. And then I focused on two specific regions, Western Europe and Africa and African-American studies. And it's kind of helped shape my professional interests going forward. It has um, it was really the reason why I came to D.C., especially my ties to the Congo. Uh, when I was a second year in law school in 2011, I witnessed what was going on in D.C. after there were elections in the DRC, and they didn't go as planned. Um, the current president, he he won that election, but there were some irregularities. And I watched all the hearings on Capitol Hill and saw who the witnesses were. And I was and I always tell people my one of my favorite albums is Solange's Seat at the Table. <laughs> yeah. And I was mad because I was like, I don't see anybody from 
who has my background, uh, mm. you know, in the witness stands or uh, speaking on this issue. Meaning have, they were not Congolese. Congolese. Mm. I basically use that as my motivation to figure out how do I get to D.C.? So I've kind of been working hard. Laura is the hardest working person I know. Laura, you will see her at any event, happy hour, workshop, seminar, conference in Washington, D.C. Laura is there and she knows everybody, as we say, everybody. Jelena, how about you? How did you get to this space? Uh, well, Boomy, first of all, I want to thank you for having me join the show. I'm a fan of you, and obviously I'm a huge fan of Miss Laura Coupe, who, like you said, is definitely <laughs> one of the hardest working women in Washington. And I think everyone who knows her is has nothing but wonderful things to say and is just a fangirl just like me. So <laughs> I'm, I'm excited to be a part of this conversation. You know what? I, I, I feel like I've always answered this question, you know, starting with my Peace Corps experience, but I think it started a little bit further back because I've always had a curiosity about worlds that were different from mine. Um, taking it back, I'm originally from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and growing up in a mix of cultures, which I didn't know was a mix of cultures until I left there, um, my great-grandmother, who is Creole taught me that language, which is a, a dead language now, kind of like Latin, but it's a broken French. And, you know, moving to California, everyone spoke Spanish, so that's what we learned in schools. But I'll never forget when we first moved there, I was a transfer into the Catholic schools. And if anybody knows the Catholic school systems, really the only way you're getting into a Catholic school where there are maybe 30 kids or 60 kids in a class if, if someone leaves. But you know anything about my mom, she was going to make sure I got into these classes because, I mean, we moved in the middle of like hurricane season. So, you know, I moved in the middle of a semester. And I remember my mom like asking me, you know, about the friends I'd made at school. And of course, you know, being from the South, it's very black and white. So she asked me, she's like, oh, was your friend, were they black or they white? And I was like, well, I think they were black, but I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out that my friend that I made was Filipino. And so for me, I had never literally, I didn't know how to describe a Filipino or a Filipina at that time, because I literally was not exposed to one being in Baton Rouge. I mean, of course, they were complexed like me. They were brown skinned, but they had straight hair and other different features. But I was like, I guess I think they black, but I don't really know. <laughs> and so that honestly piqued my interest to other cultures because I would hang with, you know, then Filipinos and Filipinas and, you know, Latinas. And of course, obviously the majority who were Caucasians in, in all of my Catholic schools. And it just, it made me challenge what my worldview was because on one end, it was like, I knew... I was privileged to an extent because I went to these pretty nice Catholic schools. I didn't want for anything. I understood that at a very young age. And so it was like, you know what? I think I, I, I need to kind of break this mold because I know I'm, I'm not really struggling, but I know that there's more to this world. And, and when I, by the time I found out about Peace Corps, their slogan is life is calling. How far will you go? And I was like, oh, my God, I had chills. I was like, I want to go pretty, pretty far. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it just seemed to click for me because, like I said, I had a, a, a curiosity and I wanted to challenge my worldview, and I felt like it was pretty limited at that time. And I, I was always curious about cultures different from my own, and I felt like we had more in common that we than we had different. And I felt like I wanted, I loved learning new languages. I wanted to kind of take myself out of my comfort zone, and I think Peace Corps kind of answered that call for me. And I, obviously, for me, it was deeply rooted in service, which has always been a part of my trajectory too. And 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 you know, serving in Cambodia, being there, I mean, you get exposed to so much more than you were even advertised from the beginning. So for me, that was, you know, development, that was diplomacy, um, even some roles of, of defense, if you will, um, you know, meeting friends who worked, obviously, at the American embassy, at the um, Australian embassy, you know, meeting and working with different um, NGOs at the time. 
it was, you know, it was really informative. It was really educational and liberating for me. And I think at the time by that, I was like, oh my gosh, I really want to do the foreign service. This is so awesome. I really want to be able to be in this industry. And in, in the foreign service, I didn't actually pursue, but obviously being with Truman, it's, it's nice to still fill that goal. So mm-hmm. here I am. Perfect. Perfect. And I think that's a great way to like segue into the subject matter of like, why did this foreign policy matter to women and minorities? Um, and so what I the, the two common themes that I see with both of you is this like story of identity and and being either from multiple places in the case of Laura or for you, Jelena, you know, having this sort of breakthrough moment where you didn't know how to identify your friend, right? I'm like, what, <laughs> what is she? How do you describe a Filipina, right? So, Laura, we'll start with you in terms of, like, identity, right? Foreign policy, it's very much about, like, for, particularly for U.S. foreign policy, it's about, like, protecting America, defending America, uh, making sure our interests abroad are 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 met, and there are people who have issues with with all of that. But how do you sort of identify? How do you sort of reconcile your various identities? Right, because you're an American, you are Congolese by heritage, have also sort of been born in a European country, and speak European languages. And so, with foreign policy, it's always about America, America, America. Do you often have tensions between sort of your work as a foreign policy expert and then also your identity as you define it as an Afropean? I think definitely as I was growing up, I was definitely trying to find my way to figure out where I belong. But I love the term third culture kid. I don't know if you ever heard that term, but basically it's a child who grows up outside of the culture of his or her parents. And President Obama is the epitome of a third culture kid. So I think people like him and and others as well have basically said, like, it's okay to, like, celebrate all your multiple identities and you don't have to choose. Maybe it's a very millennial thing, hence why I created the term. And when it comes to, you know, reconciling those identities, I realized that, especially working in the transatlantic context, when Europe is good, America is good. You Mm -hmm. know, I think I realized that it's not like a zero sum game mm. and that especially in the transatlantic context, America and especially Western Europe share a strong tradition. I definitely got to witness it growing up in Luxembourg and in Germany where that relationship economically and politically was very strong. And I think when it comes to my identity as a Congolese American as well, I just I, I think that if Congo and the rest of Africa is strong, America will benefit from that as well um, mm-hmm. by having stronger trade and, and political partners as well. Right. So I think, if anything, I hope I can symbolize the the strength um, that could arise when those areas of the world are more interconnected. Right. And Jelena, you know, you did Peace Corps, so you could have easily done AmeriCorps, right? And, and stayed yeah, and you know- in the United States. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's it's interesting that you mentioned that because friends or strangers alike would always make that argument to me. They're like, you know, well, why would you leave here? Like, right. like, why would you leave here? I mean, we have so many problems in the States. You can do service here. For me, my argument was always that, hey, you know, a, a representation and representation matters. And for me, actually, when I went to uh, serve in the Peace Corps, Cambodia was the newest country in the entire post. 
So, I mean, my group was literally the third group, group to ever enter the country. So we were still very much guinea pigs. And meaning, you know, I was literally the third black woman <laughs> you know, serving Peace Corps Cambodia, which was trailblazing. And then, wow. you know, we were still, they were still developing the program. So again, that's why I think you can't make decisions about us without us being at the table. So again, so that meant for me, not only just serving and not only, you know, taking on extra projects, but that meant for me serving on the volunteer advisory committee, which every Peace Corps post has. And, you know, that's you representing, you know, your or multiple, multiple provinces with the Peace Corps director and country and, you know, making decisions on behalf of, you know, your cohort, you know, your fellow um, volunteers. So for me, again, you know, going to a place where literally no one had ever seen or even heard of what a black woman was or my look. <laughs> I mean, it just, it's funny now, but it, I think, you know, of course, I, I went through some very uncomfortable moments that, like, when my school director, when I came to school, I mean, he called Peace Corps and said, you know, why is this, you know, foreign woman at my school? I thought I was going to get another white male oh. because they, I replaced a white male. So I just, you know, what they called him was Mr. Josh. They're like, well, we, we thought we were going to get another Mr. Josh. And for a while, people thought I was Indian because they interpret Indians to be dark skinned and when I picked up Kamai, their native language, I was pretty good at it. So they were like, well, who is this Indian at our school? We thought we were going to get a, an American white man. Like, what's going on? So for me, I had so many barriers to entry. And my way of actually defying that was actually, you know, working and teaching the Buddhist monks in my local pagoda, because that's how I got my, my villages. Wait, hold on, hold on, hold up. Did you say you taught Buddhist monks? I did. And that was my actually my favorite part of my service, which was totally like not a part of, you know, our scheme and it was all voluntary. But what was interesting is that the head monk at our Wat, as we call it, um, he spoke English, so he was my immediate best friend. And he understood what the Peace Corps was. He understood why I was there. And he was so grateful and so gracious that I was there that he summoned me. He's like, I know you're a woman because, you know, women in Cambodia are already treated kind of as second-class citizens. So, I mean, for me to be a woman, an American woman, a Black American Catholic woman teaching at, you know, a Cambodian Buddhist pagoda in a very small village, like that had, that is unheard of. Their heads so probably exploded. Me, yeah, <laughs> they, they, it did. And it was fun for me, though. It, I just actually, they were really, really fun to work with and to know what the monks go through. I mean, that's their way out. That's, they were really, really fun to work with. And I think I, again, learned a, a lot about their culture and their, and their religion. I was able to share mine. And that was like one of the most beautiful experiences in my service. Yeah. And I want to I want to, you know, put a plug out there for Jelena because she she wrote a great article back um, last year towards the end of last year um, around the time that there was a lot of news coverage on the NFL protests. And she wrote so eloquently about the values of America and the values of freedom of speech and her experiences being the daughter of an NFL player. Talk about sort of your feelings when you were writing that that piece. Oh, well, let's just say I had all the feels, all. <laughs> every single one of them as a daughter of a former NFL wide receiver who was a part of, you know, the NFL protests in the 70s to get, you know, their fair wage compensation. And as someone who was an also a former NFL cheerleader who walked the walk and talked the talk and really walked the talk when I was a part of the organization and to really understand how powerful the NFL brand is on a, an, as a global franchise, it, it, it's crazy. I mean, I remember being a Peace Corps volunteer and traveling to Kuala Lumpur and seeing, 
you know, a plane that was, you know, partnered with Malaysia Air that had, that was like endorsed by the Raiders. So it was like literally all like some Raiders players and Raiderettes. And it was like, oh my gosh, there's wow. these little, you know, everyone in Malaysia knew Raiders. And then as a Raiderette, I got to travel and represent the brand in China, in, in Shanghai. And, and it was just amazing that I, I got to like be on Weibo, which is like their social media and like TV <laughs> And, you know, learn a little bit of Mandarin and stuff and, you know, interact with fans. And they were just so enamored with us. I think, again, it's, it's not a singular issue. It's an issue of, like, can we connect on shared values? And, and, and if it is so, how? And for me, again, it's more than that. It's us, you know, finding respect. It's finding, you know, patriotism. It's finding leadership and responsibility. And that's really what it's about. I think, of course, there's someone who, you know, name I won't mention, who wants to make a divisive issue. And it's not. I think if people, anyone who has been a part of a team, professional or otherwise, would say the same thing. Yeah. So I think for me, I was inspired by all of my experiences and, you know, thus far that really helped me just it was it was easy. It was kind of a no brainer. Right. And you you alluded to it in your article about how, you know, when when we have leaders who sort of shun players, it doesn't bode well with us abroad to see the leader of the free world display such animosity towards other Americans. Right. And yes, we have freedom of speech. Yes, we can all say what we want. But if there's a level of professionalism that comes with the office of the president and and for the, the president to speak so negatively and really put down other Americans who are exercising their freedom of speech, um, it doesn't it just doesn't look good uh, outside of the United States when we sort of go around the world and, and sort of tout these values of freedom of speech and, and democracy and all of these other other values that we hold so dearly to our hearts. It doesn't. And I think when you know America, America as the world leader, I think coming from the vantage point of having lived in Southeast Asia, that's you know, in Cambodia, that's a constitutional monarchy where you don't have freedom of speech at all. Like I, right. I remember, and I, I don't know the nationality, I can't speak, you know, directly to that. I don't want to be quoted, but I know it was someone who obviously was not um, from the continent of Asia. It was, you know, someone who was either um, Australian or Kiwi, a New Zealander, who said something that was not highly favored of the prime minister, Hun Sen, on his blog. So blogger, blogspot.com. And when that happened, the country decided to block all that entire website completely. So, I mean, I was like, oh my God, like I couldn't, I didn't have access to my blog because of what another foreigner said about their prime minister, obviously, while we were all living there. I mean, it was a freedom that I had blindly took for granted mm-hmm. for so long because I just knew it as a part of my life. Right. Um, but, you know, it's again, even when people who are there, it's like, you know, they see us and they admire us as this world leader, even though there's someone who's divisive, who's in office. And it's just kind of like, I think we don't really, we take for granted what's been given to us. And, and I think we need to kind of use it as a tool to kind of like build bridges and not break them apart. Right. And so if anybody is wondering why foreign policy should matter to women and minorities, I think just being, if you're, first of all, if you're both, if you're a woman and a minority and you're American, um, I think just having a seat at the table as, 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 as it's been stated, um, it shows to the rest of the world how serious we are about our values. And if we're going to tell Cambodia or Congo or any country how to build their governments or how to create the rule of law, we have to make sure that we ourselves are being examples of the very values that we want others to to adhere to, right? And so by Jelena going abroad and uh, sharing, you know, her experiences as a, as a Black American woman from Baton Rouge, who's Catholic, right, that shows Cambodian people sort of America's ability to um, be diverse and, and, and provide freedoms to all people. And of course, with Laura and her amazing story of being born in Germany, 
right? Raised in Luxembourg and be having her family come to the United States um, and go to Detroit, right? No. Suburbs of the Detroit. Suburbs of Detroit. <laughs> the suburbs of Detroit. The suburbs. My friends sh- from Detroit will, will, will understand. I, I, I'm like suburbs. <laughs> yeah, look, I'm a suburban girl too. Right. I know. I'm a I, I know what's the claim. I can't, I, can't lay, I can't agree with y'all on that. I'm totally a city girl through and through. Through and through. But uh, Laura, you know, you, you so I just want to take a, a, a quick opportunity to talk about Black Panther because there's been so many think pieces and debates on Facebook and Twitter. And I'm sure we've each had conversations about the cultural, political significance of this film and what it's done to the Black community here in the United States. But also I've been reading articles on Afro-Brazilians who have been watching it and um, Africans on the continent who have watched it and their take. So Laura, give us your sort of foreign policy lens on Black Panther. What are the foreign policy pieces, nuggets that you took away from the film? So from a foreign policy lens, I think some interesting things came up in terms of like governance, like how in terms of Wakanda, I read a lot of think pieces as well. So some people (laughs) are like, is Wakanda like Norway, which is kind of, you know, isolated but wealthy and chooses to engage in the world to do good when it chooses to, but it's pretty homogeneous. And or Botswana, which is um, an example of a sub-Saharan African country that's been able to manage its wealth pretty well, unlike other countries that have been, quote unquote, Um, resource cursed. So I think that was really interesting reading some of those aspects and as well as, you know, King Chala had to think about, do we let in refugees and will refugees Mm -hmm. impact our national identity? I felt like that was very relevant in terms of Something that, you know, the U.S. and I think a number of Western European countries are thinking about. Which you've also written about. Right. So I think from a governance piece, I thought that was really interesting. And then um, in my personal capacity, as someone who I'm, of course, as an Afro-Pean-American, I do think this film was, you know, interesting in a number of ways. And I loved seeing which how different parts of diaspora identified with different pieces and what they took away from it. So definitely having grown up as a Black person in America and in Europe, you don't see a lot of positive imagery, especially about Africa. And so I thought that was really great in terms of addressing that. And I think the interesting piece being Congolese American is thinking about the legacy of colonialism and the slave trade, because I think a lot of people don't understand really why especially when it comes to imagery about Africa, that it's poor and corrupt and war-ridden, don't really understand. Well, first of all, that's a small piece of a bigger puzzle, but they don't understand the context or why. And I don't really hear a lot of people talking about the legacy of colonialism and the impact it had on the African continent, particularly being Congolese. This This film really resonated with me because... When it came to colonialism, the mod- I'm, t- I'm speaking about the Democratic Republic of Congo because there's another Congo. So the Republic of Congo. School them, school them. Right. So there, <laughs> there are two of them. And um, so the DRC um, has had a very, I, I'll be honest, a brutal history because of who colonized uh, um, the country. So 
King Leopold was the initial owner of of the Belgian Free State. And, and tell him where King Leopold was from. He was from Belgium. And so he basically ran the Congo like as his personal property. And he basically tortured, maimed, flogged the native population. Um, and during the time that uh, the Congo was his private property, eight to 10 million people perished. Mm-hmm. And even Mark Twain was upset about everything that was going on. So, so, so this was like an international crisis. Um, and Mark Twain even wrote a soliloquy about it. He's like, King Leopold is like, the Congo is great because it's being ruled by King Leopold. But he was <laughs> he was being um, satirical and he mm-hmm. critiqued it. Mm-hmm. And then also... And then because of the public out- outcry, the Belgian government took over. Mm. And at the time of independence, there were only 16 college graduates um, in the whole of the country. So the Congo received independence on, Jan- on June 30th, and there were only 16 college graduates. So the Belgians didn't really invest, um, unlike in other, co- um, you know, like Nigeria. Like Nigeria, right. The, like, you know, the Brits build roads and right. stuff. I mean, the Belgians b- built roads, too. But I think if you look at Nigeria, there's more of an infrastructure. A, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, that just wasn't there at the time of independence um, in the Congo and afterwards. So for you, there's this whole like memory of the col- the the colonization or it's like the what if the what if what would have happened Wakanda was never colonized <laughs> right exactly well so. i saw a think piece about you know the the real wakanda or the sort of close equivalent being ethiopia that was never colonized mm-hmm. right and, and yep. i think that article came out like a couple mm-hmm. days ago so i missed that one yeah exactly. I, i've read most of them so <laughs> that one uh. what about what about uh you jelena sort of how, how what were your feels after you saw the film well, let me just say that I saw the film three times already, <laughs> kind of already like a super crazed fanatic. I know, I know it's okay, but I just, I, by the third one, because I knew I wanted to write on it, I was just taking notes. Um, let me just, let me just start off with a, a shameless plug that um, our Black Panther T'Challa is a bison. You're right. <laughs> Go bison. He is a Howard alum. And, and what, You're right. What, what's, it, what's great about or what's really interesting about him is that he actually just did an interview where he said or, you know, all of them kind of alluded to he didn't even audition from the role like they hand selected him. And he talked about how his experience at Howard actually prepared him to be like a real life Wakandan from, you know, experiencing the black diaspora firsthand. And it's just such a beautiful thing. But what stuck out to me the most is kind of that notion of like when women succeed, everybody succeeds. Yeah. Everybody, you know, who was really in power was, you know, there were women, you know, his his army, his general, Okoye, um, his leading lady who was a spy, Nakia. But I think to even just, you know, representation of us in that movie, to see women, to see like myself reflected on that screen, like a very uninterrupted black woman who is, you know, chocolate skinned, natural hair or even no hair, because that, you know, I guess for their tribe, it was like, you know, it's, it's just, you know, it's more regal right. to not. And it would just get in the way when you're kicking behind, when you're kicking somebody's butt, all that hair would just get in the way. Again, and the notion of having, you know, women in power and really like being the neck and the driving force of the country just shows like, again, like this, this isn't a myth. It's something, you know, based off of like, you know, facts and stuff that have happened in a kind of mix of different cultures, you know, from the diaspora. And I thought it was just so beautiful done and artfully done on like literally on every level. Today, women are now seen as principal leaders in terms of peace building and peacemaking around the world. And and that's in places in Arab countries where before women 
were not to be seen or heard. Now women are like writing constitutions. Um, you see this in African countries, for example, with um, Liberia, who elected the, the first African female president. Right. Uh, so so I think from an American perspective, as women living in America, as women of color living in America, we have to think to ourselves, like, what can we do here in our own country to make sure that we one, you know, support women around the world, but also do our best to contribute to America, to America's foreign policy strategy around the world. Right. And making sure that what we do here in America doesn't um, harm uh, other women in other in other places around the world, and that women in the United States have opportunities to serve in various capacities in the foreign policy space and to lend their expertise and their experiences and their perspectives uh, to foreign policy strategy. Um, because like we saw in the film, when we have a seat at the table, when we are respected, when people do hear us, we can do some damage. We can do some damage. So that's my like in terms of women and peace and security and why this foreign policy space matters, that to me is like, that's what jumped out to me. One of the many things that jumped out to me about about the film. Well, I think the notion of reaching back and pulling forward is something that not only do I take seriously, but I, I just take it to heart. And as someone who, you know, came to Washington or came back to Washington, not in this space, like I literally had to work from the ground up by myself and kind of, you know, I think, you know, we, I think we could all agree sometimes Washington can be either perceived or really reality be a little clicky, you know, if it's all about who you know and kind of working up those relationships or, you know, maybe it's about someone and especially probably most likely not in our community, but like, you know, someone's, you know, wealthy dad who right. made it to a campaign and was able to place them. And we, we weren't, we just don't have those opportunities. We hustle. And, you know, again, this is something that's not new to any of us. And, and it's just one of those things that, of course, you know, leveraging our political power. Um, I was fortunate enough to attend the inaugural um, uh, or Power Rising Conference in Atlanta last week, which, oh, my God, <laughs> let me just tell you, that was probably the best conference I've ever attended in my life for so many reasons. I mean, it was so warm. It was so safe in a room full of women who, you know, to, you know, I think, you know, to his credit, you know, our president, um, Donald Trump. You know, we wouldn't be in that position had he not been in office. And I think a lot of us feel the same way in this space. You know, um, African-Americans or people that ask for national security, you know, a lot of things would not be highlighted had the administration been different. So I think, you know, we a lot of things are kind of put on the forefront in our face and we're reacting to it. You know, I think we're, again, you know, being in media, everything is rapid response. But I think, you know, something beautiful, you know, lemonade and a lemon drop was made out of this presidency when I was able to come and join over a thousand other women in Atlanta to talk about how we can have an agenda to strategize and really leverage our political power. I mean, beyond electing people like Doug Jones, beyond, you know, having people, you know, like Keisha Lance Bottoms, you know, as the mayor of Atlanta and stuff. And I think Democrats and Republicans should be afraid of black women who are able to form their own party. They should be very wow. Well, <laughs> we ain't doing no fighting words on this show, but those are kind of fighting words. And I want to I, I want to um, add in something that, Laura, you mentioned to me yesterday when we were talking about sort of the change in perception about American foreign policy among millennials. Now, I identify as sort of an older millennial and a younger Gen Xer because 
you know, I grew up without a computer, <laughs> but then I grew up with a computer like in, in, in high school and, you know, I you know, grew up on the Oregon Trail. So, like, <laughs> I knew when MC. I did I, like, the Oregon Trail, too. So, OK, well, okay. like when it first came out on the PC, <laughs> where like you can see the pixels and stuff like, you know, <laughs> and I grew up when, you know, MTV was still showing music videos like on a regular basis, like all the time. But my point being is, you know, there's been this um, generational change in attitudes about foreign policy. And uh, Laura, you you talked about this, a study that was done by Pew about how millennials have a little bit more diplomatic approach or feel like their America should have a more diplomatic approach to foreign policy. Can you just talk about that a little bit? So I, there are two figures. So there are a number of interesting things, but I think 66% of millennials said that they really value alliances and that America should you know, engage in those and compromise if necessary. And I think another figure was that 61% of millennials said that openness should be part of America's identity. Mm -hmm. And I do feel like that's Probably, I mean, I would say one of the factors is probably the fact that millennials are a lot more diverse than mm -hmm. previous generations. And and I would say, you know, immigration was a factor in that. Right, right. Um, so I, another interesting fact that I found was that like one in 10 black people in America is foreign born. Yep. yep. And that 18 um, percent of black America consists of immigrants and now they're children. Mm -hmm. So that's basically one in five. That's people. me. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, even if you look at like black America itself, it is changing. And those immediate, you know, those immigrants that came more recently clearly have immediate ties to their countries of origin and are very interested in what U the U.S.'s foreign policy will be in those countries. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm sure that's, the same with in the Latino community and the Asian American community, right. because our communities are more tied to our countries of origin right. through technology and being able to travel more right. regularly. Right. So I'm almost certain that, you know, all the younger millennials that I know that do have immigrant backgrounds, they do follow what's going on exactly. in their countries of origin. And I'm sure that hopefully as more as our national security um, establishment diversifies, I'm sure that <laughs> it will that will impact how we right. do foreign policy. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So I think that's definitely something worth noting. And I also would guess that, you know, the, the folks who are, you know, the higher ups or the, you know, the people that are more in higher ranks are, are tracking this because, right. you know, that could possibly impact how they how the u.s does foreign policy right. and a lot of forward. these and a lot of these people are about to retire this baby boomer generation is about to, to exit um, many of them have in the foreign policy space in particular and so we have a pipeline issue that that's going to be addressed or that needs to be addressed and that pipeline is filled with folks like jelena like laura like myself like many others that we know from all spectrums of the of the political space as well not just democratic leaning or progressive leaning but on the conservative side the republican side there is now a pipeline of women and minorities who are eager and ready to contribute to america's foreign policy and on that note i want to sort of have laura talk about an issue that's important to her she alluded to it a little bit earlier uh in talking about congo but laura did give us like a quick synopsis of of the Congo situation. Some people may have heard about this in the news, um, this messy, messy crisis today in the Congo where there's massive amounts of being people being killed and there's devastation all over the place. So Laura, what, what exactly is happening in the Congo? But then also 
give us just a sense of why anybody should why why is this relevant to the united states it's very complicated and booby will probably have to have an episode <laughs> i will i will you know in the future work like, you us know a, give us the rundown of right. what, what happened right there <laughs> it's <laughs> gonna take some time but i would say that you know and, and i think again that's why i've always had interest in foreign policy and history because you really need to know history to understand why the things that are going on are in the Congo are currently happening. So again, I alluded to it earlier, but I think the more recent or a good place to start is with um, the dictator that I had mentioned, uh, Mobutu Sese Seku. So he was in power from 1965 until 1997. Towards the end of his, well, his time in power, I think we all are very aware of the Rwandan genocide. Right. And so basically, some people say that was the Achilles heel that led to the end of his uh, time in power. So basically, what ended up happening is that the genocidaires, so those that um, did much of the slaughtering in Rwanda, moved over into the DRC. Back then, the country was still called Zaire. Let's let's back up one minute. Yeah, I don't sorry. know that people quite, people quite get this connection. Sorry. Right. So Rwanda and Congo geographically are, are neighbor, neighboring countries. Right. And the, with the Rwandan crisis, we had Congolese um, citizens going over to Rwanda. No, and, we had. So the I'm Rwandans. Sorry. They fled. Yes. So we had so basically Rwandan refugees fled moved, into the fled Congo. into the Congo. Correct. And that included so some of them were legitimate refugees and some of them were some of the individuals that did the, the murdering. Yeah. Yeah. And so basically that's been a huge source of instability, particularly in the eastern part. Basically then the Rwandan government, which then became Tutsi controlled honestly invaded the DRC, the eastern part of it. And um, so that's been kind of like the Achilles heel and, and has caused a lot of caused a lot of the tension. And as a result of that, um, Mobutu basically got kicked out of power and um, a new president came in. So his name was Laurent Kabila, who at first was an ally of Rwanda and then broke with the Rwandans. And then when that happens, he angered the Rwandans and so this is where it's like this sounds like World War One with yeah, alliances like, <laughs> and people getting angry. But basically, once he broke with the Rwandans, that created what people a lot of people called the Second Congo War, which actually has been considered one of the deadliest uh, conflicts in the world since World War Two. Estimates are as high when it comes to death toll that there there could be there could have been a, a, approximately five point four million deaths. But no one talks about it. And then also then as Kabila was trying to fight off um, the Rwandans, Ugandans in eastern Congo, he got he got support from Zimbabwe, Angola. So, again, that's what I'm saying. It sounds not like World War One, where all <laughs> these alliances are, ha- in, yeah. you know, jump, like they're, they're coming to the forefront. And as a result of that, also the Congo is very resource rich. So, again, a connection to Wakanda, the Congo has is very resource rich. It has um, a mineral called coltan for short that is in our cell phones and yeah, our pacemakers. Yeah, yeah. Basically, you have coltan probably right next, you know, attached to your body in some <laughs> shape or form. So because of that, of course, then there are like militias and armed groups. So like, as you can imagine, it's, you know, people probably characterize it as a, a hot mess. Yeah. But but that, that shows you all the different actors. So you have like nations like actual nation states engaging in this war, but then there are all these rebel groups. And, right. and then you have companies who are in there who are trying to get their, their minerals to get 
out of there so that they can get them in our cell phones. <laughs> yeah, again, it's very <laughs> complex, yeah. you know. I'm, um, but I, so again, it just shows you that this is very complicated. And so basically, as a result of that, there was there was a peace accords in 2003, and then during the course of that tension, I would call him like Kabila one, the dad. He got assassinated, and his son took over. And so his name is Joseph Kabila, and he came into power in 2001 at the time of the assassination. Then there were elections in 2006 that he um, he then won. Um, so that legitimized his um, his, his, presidency. his presidency. And then there were um, an, another set of elections when his um, five year term ended in 2011. That election was a little bit more messy and problematic. And um, the U.S. did highlight that there were irregularities, but basically the major donors let him stay in power. And so his term ended in 2016, according, you know, to the five year term limit. And the Congolese Constitution allows for a two term limit. And he's still there. And he ain't trying to leave. <laughs> he's still there. And so um, he's very he's unpopular. So polls say that his popularity ranking is around 7.8 percent or at least less than 10 percent. People have been protesting and um, his responses have been violent. And Ambassador Nikki Haley has expressed her concerns about this, about the fact that um, people who are peacefully protesting are getting attacked and, in fact, getting murdered. Even and I'm also Catholic like Jelena. So actually, the Congo is the is Africa's largest Catholic country in terms of population and that. size. I didn't know that. And um, so the Catholic Church has played a big part in at least trying to get peaceful protests or at least to start the conversation around like, hey, your term limit is up. So uh, this has been going on and the U.S. has been watching this and Ambassador Haley has been vocal about it. And during the Trump administration, the U.S. has imposed sanctions mm -hmm. on Kabila and his closest allies. So and I think the reason why people should care is that especially people who who are interested in Africa is like Congo's the size of the of Western Europe, or some people call it the heart of Africa. And so if the heart of Africa is bleeding or in flames, clearly those flames will spread in terms of humanity. What they're going through is is not right. And hopefully, at least by me talking about it, that is something that people can think about more, you know, more seriously. Thank you, Laura. That's a perfect synopsis. And um we will have an episode um, breaking down what Laura just talked about. So if you were like, what? what is going <laughs> like, I know it was very confusing. No, Sorry. no, you did a great job. But I, I think the, the issue deserves a little bit more unpacking. And um, we're going to we're going to definitely get to that at some point in the year. And so in honor of Women's History Month, I just wanted each of us, Jelena, we'll start with you to just share one woman in your life who. Um, it's just an amazing source of inspiration for you um, that you want the world or I don't know if the world is listening to my show, but certainly my <laughs> listeners, <laughs> certainly who who do you think my listeners or the listeners of this show, show should know about um, a woman in foreign policy that you admire or that everyone should know about? So a woman in foreign policy that I admire that most people probably don't think about firsthand as you know, I guess traditional foreign policy would definitely have to be Dr. Mae C. Jemison. Um, I love her on so many levels, not only for being, you know, the first African-American woman in space, you know, as an engineer and as a physician. Uh, she also 
you know, plug again for the Peace Corps was the Peace Corps Medical Officer. So anybody who served in the Peace Corps knows that PCMO is literally a lifesaver. And she spent, I think, like 80K to save a life, which was is, she was a huge cost, you know, for the Peace Corps when she did it. And a lot of people don't know that. And she's also a dancer. So shout out to her for being dynamic <laughs> as well. Awesome. Laura, what about you? Who's a foreign policy woman that you admire? I would like to highlight Ambassador Gina Abercrombie Winstanley. So she she just retired from um, from the State Department. But um, I would say most notably recently, she was the U.S. ambassador to Malta. Um, Like Jelena, she's a former Peace Corps volunteer. So she was in Oman. Uh, After that, she was she went to the Foreign Service. She learned Arabic. Um, So she's. She's been at the National Security Council, and then she was the first woman to be um, consul general in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. And again, like I mentioned, she was the ambassador, to, U.S. ambassador to Malta. So I think hopefully, you know, people like Jelena and I can follow in her ranks because her her career trajectory has been very <laughs> inspiring. And my my foreign policy um, person or woman is actually y'all. Stop. (laughs) (laughs) It's y'all. Y'all are great. And um, I come across so many women like you guys in Washington and outside of Washington who are out here, like Jelena said, hitting the pavement, going to events, talking to people, reading, um, speaking on panels. And you guys just inspire me so much. And thank you. I just thank you guys for being on you ladies for being on the show and for doing it such a last minute as well, because I totally sprang this on them <laughs> and they, they stepped up to the challenge. So on that note, I want to thank you all for listening to What in the World. You can catch us at whatintheworldpodcast.com. We're also on SoundCloud and on Facebook and on Twitter. So um, you can listen to other episodes and uh, in true fashion. We end the show on a positive note with some music. And the song, thanks to to uh, Laura for her insight, the song that we, we are going to end on is uh, Congo Square by the legendary Lady T, Miss Tina Marie. There's this linkage between the two of you that I did not intentionally create um, and having this this connection, this Congo, Laura being from the Congo and, and, and Jelena being from Louisiana, uh, both having this sort of cousin relationship to each other. So... Hey, cousin. <laughs> hey, cousin. Oh, wait, wait. Hey, hey, auntie. <laughs> so the, that is that is the song um, that you are listening to. So thank you again. And that is that is it. And uh, we will catch you next time on the next episode where we will be talking about Syria and Muslim identities here in the United States. Thank you for tuning in. <laughs>